All right, Trinity Church, welcome back to uh, our home group podcast as we're uh, moving through the Gospel of Luke, and um, we're recording these podcasts as just uh, quick introductions to the material that you'll be reading. And so this week, we're going to look at chapters 17, 18, and 19 in the Gospel of Luke. Um, So let's start with chapter 17. Uh, Chapter 17, um, you could divide it roughly into uh, two halves. Um, The first half focuses on Jesus' teaching to his disciples. And um, this teaching is a little more general. And then the second half of of Luke 17 focuses on um, the kingdom of God or the coming of the Son of Man. And this uh, focus continues into the first part of um, chapter 18 and really Jesus continues to focus on what it looks like to enter the kingdom um, as he moves through uh, the rest of the content in chapter 18 and into 19. Um, in 19 he finally arrives in Jerusalem and you might say that we see um, though we see um, Israel in a sense greeting him as their Messiah that and even as they greet him they miss that he they miss the kingdom that he brings um, because he doesn't bring um, freedom from Roman oppression. He he actually brings ultimately freedom from the judgment of God, but um, Israel does not have eyes to see. Um, and so let's begin in chapter 17. Um, chapter 17 begins with uh, Jesus teaching on um, stumbling or sinning, and um, he focuses on uh, the disciples' life together. And Jesus urges them to pay attention to how their actions affect one another and the heart that they cultivate towards each other. So on, on the one hand, uh, Jesus urges them not to be a stumbling block to each other by tempting others to sin. Um, on the other hand, Jesus also insists that um, when his disciples are sinned against, uh, that they must be eager and ready to show mercy through forgiveness. Um, Jesus says, even if a brother sins against you seven times in a day, when he turns to you and says, I repent, you must forgive him. And so Jesus has this emphasis on stumbling or sinning, both uh, the fact that we should be conscientious of the way that we might lead others to sin, but also very conscientious. In this section, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. We should pay attention to our hearts towards those who sinned um, against us. And are we cultivating a heart that's eager and ready to forgive or a heart of bitterness, resentment, um, unforgiveness? Luke follows this with the disciples asking Jesus to increase their faith, to give them faith. And of course, that's a fitting way to follow up what for the disciples would have been a hard teaching, a challenge um, that the disciples must be conscientious and full of forgiveness. And Jesus responds by affirming their need for faith. And he says that uh, with the faith um, just the size of a mustard seed, that they could uproot a tree and cast it into the sea, that trees would obey them with only the faith the size of a mustard seed. And so Jesus is pointing out that the smallest amount of faith can do great, great things, including forgive others um, just as many times as they sin against us. These things and greater faith can do. Um, Luke follows this with a parable on um, duty, um, our duty to uh, our authority, uh, to God who is our authority. And so this parable, um, Jesus kind of makes the point in this parable that a master doesn't reward a servant just for doing his normal duty. Um, In the words of one commentator, you know, a servant just by kind of the daily discharge of his duties doesn't place his master in his debt 
Um, and so neither can we place God in our debt by simply obeying him. And so this parable challenges uh, the self-righteousness of both the Pharisees and the disciples, because the disciples too, if you remember in Luke, have already shown themselves to be kind of preoccupied, at least at, at times, um, with honor, with status. And so Jesus is making the point here that simply obeying God is not enough to put God in our debt. Um, it's simply doing what we're required. And so there's no basis for um, this self-righteous kind of arrogance that we see in the Pharisees and the disciples. Now, at this point in chapter 17, Luke uh, reminds us that Jesus is continuing on his way to Jerusalem. Um, again, Jesus has, has his face set towards Jerusalem. He's already talked um, a number of times about his death, his impending doom, and he'll continue to discuss that as it gets closer to Jerusalem. And so we're remembering that he's making his way to Jerusalem. Um, and as he's, as he's going, he encounters 10 lepers. And these lepers shout to Jesus and they plead for mercy. And Jesus doesn't come to them. He doesn't pronounce that they're healed. He simply says, go show yourself to the priests. And on the way, the lepers realize that they've been healed. Now only one leper, seeing that he's healed, this one leper turns back and goes to Jesus and falls on his face at Jesus' feet. Now notice that this leper, instead of going to a temple, he comes back to Jesus. Because remember, Jesus is the place of God's presence and blessing. And Luke tells us that this man falls on his face and worships Jesus. So we see a man worshiping in the presence of God before Jesus, right? But Luke also tells us that this man was a Samaritan. Jesus calls him a foreigner. Um, he comes back alone. He comes to give praise to God. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And so this foreigner or Samaritan um, in Luke's telling demonstrates what a heart of true faith looks like. And remember that Luke has already kind of showed us um, Jesus' teaching on mercy and faith and humility before God. Um, and this foreigner, this Samaritan leper, this outsider, in so many different ways, as a, as a Samaritan, as a leper, he serves as a model that we're called to emulate. Um, he serves as a model for Israel, God's own people, of what true faith and humility and uh, thanksgiving looks like and what it looks like to recognize Jesus as the presence of God come to earth, um, to recognize that Jesus brings the kingdom. And that serves as a helpful segue into the rest of chapter 17 and the beginning of 18. Um, Jesus responds to a question from the Pharisees about the coming of the Son of Man. Um, this, uh, that human divine messianic figure um, in Daniel who is going to restore God's kingdom. And so Jesus um, responds to this question about when the kingdom will come. Um, Jesus first corrects the misunderstanding that the kingdom could be located in a certain place at all. It's not that you could say here is the kingdom or over there is the kingdom. Um, that's because Jesus is the presence of the kingdom. And remember, the kingdom is like leaven or like um, a small seed. And so the kingdom subtly spreads um, in the wake of what Jesus has done as he shows mercy through healing and providing and through forgiveness. Um, that's how the kingdom spreads. Um, second, Jesus warns that the kingdom will finally come visibly and spectacularly. Um, he describes it like lightning in the sky. But Jesus says before this universal revealing, um, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. And so suffering precedes the exaltation and glory of the Son of Man. And furthermore, Jesus emphasizes that nobody knows 
when that day of universal revealing will be. Um, and so the disciples should wait faithfully. They should be beware of, of apathy or being distracted by worldly pursuits or pleasures, just eating and drinking and not worrying about the coming of uh, the king. Um, no one knows that future day, but we know that future day is coming. And so that the reality of that future day should define the way that we live in the present. Um, as we move to chapter 18, Jesus continues teaching about the coming kingdom. And he uses a parable of a widow who comes day after day before an unjust judge. Um, every day she comes insisting that the judge bring her justice. And that maybe that, you know, this is a corrupt judge. So at first he, he refuses her on day one and day two and day three. But Jesus says, you know, if this widow is persistent coming day after day after day because of her persistence, eventually even a really corrupt judge is going to give in and give her what she asks for. And what Jesus is doing, he, he ends by promising that God is going to be so much more receptive, receptive to our cries for justice and responsive than an earthly judge such as this corrupt judge. Um, that God will certainly give justice to his people when they cry out for it. Um, and that the kingdom, when the kingdom comes, it will be, it will be God bringing justice for his, uh, for his people. At this point in chapter 18, the focus shifts from um, kind of a, a discussion of the nature of the coming kingdom um, to the character required of God's kingdom, uh, which is humility and especially awareness of one's weaknesses. So first Luke says that Jesus kind of uses a parable um, to show us this kingdom humility. Um, and, and Luke specifically says that he tells this parable um, to confront those who were with uh, Jesus who were self-righteous or treated others as if they're better, treated others with contempt. And this parable that Jesus tells is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, um, one that many of us have probably heard. Um, both go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee looks at the tax collector and thanks God that he is not unjust or corrupt like the tax collector. And then the Pharisee recounts all of his righteous works. But the tax collector, he can't even lift his eyes to heaven, and he pleads for God's mercy. And Jesus says the tax collector, not the Pharisee, the tax collector goes home justified because he demonstrates a heart of true humility, a heart of true repentance. Um, Jesus ends that parable saying, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so Jesus shows us that part of kingdom character is humility, awareness of our weakness and dependence on the mercy of God, um, not pride in our own works, not believing that we can put God in our debt, because as Jesus has already said, that's ridiculous to think we could ever do that. But uh, when the kingdom comes, those who enter the kingdom are those who are humble and aware of their weaknesses. Two more episodes in this chapter continue this focus on humility and kingdom living. Um, first, people are bringing their infant children to Jesus to be blessed. But the disciples are turning them away. Um, Jesus rebukes them and says, Let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so if you want to enter the kingdom, Jesus has said, be like the tax collector. Now he's saying, be like these weak children. But next, we see Jesus interacting with a rich ruler. And the rich ruler asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus ultimately instructs him not just to follow all the commandments, because the ruler says, I followed all the commandments for all my life. Um, but Jesus says also to the, this rich ruler, he says, take all your possessions, sell them, and give the proceeds to the poor. And what Luke tells us is that the ruler becomes very sad because he's extremely rich. And he cannot bring himself to let go of his riches and lay hold of eternal life, of, um, of uh, heavenly treasure. And so Jesus, he is making a comment on wealth and its dangers. Um, this is the famous um, analogy where it's, it's more difficult for a rich man to enter heaven than for a camel to, to, to uh, crawl through the eye of a needle. Um, but Je so Jesus is warning against the dangers of money. But remember, the context is, is uh, who, what, what, what the kingdom looks like and who enters the kingdom. And Jesus has shown us that the kingdom includes tax collectors and children. And now it includes those who are free from the stranglehold of wealth, which would be the poor. And so these three categories of people, tax collectors, children, uh, the poor, they are the ones that would have popularly be uh, conceived as um, on the margins of God's kingdom or even outside God's kingdom. But in these stories, um, Jesus is uh, turning all those assumptions upside down and locating these people at the center of God's kingdom. Um, and so he's saying, don't look at wealthy men and women and think, oh, there's God's kingdom blessing. Instead, feel something closer to pity. Because for those wealthy men and women, entrance to the kingdom of God is going to feel especially restrictive and difficult. It's going to be especially hard. And so Jesus is turning all the assumptions about what God's kingdom looks like, what kingdom character looks like. He's turning them all upside down. Um, that moves us to chapter 19. Um, chapter 19 continues first with episodes and teaching that emphasize how one must enter the kingdom. Uh, chapter 19, we have the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and Jesus. Zacchaeus serves as this kind of live case study of the repentant tax collector that we saw in chapter 18. Uh, we also have the parable of the ten minas. Um, Luke tells us that uh, Jesus tells this parable in response to those who suppose the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so a mina was about three months worth of wages. And the parable in brief is that a nobleman gives 10 servants each a mina to invest as they see fit, while the nobleman is away in a far uh, country receiving for himself a kingdom. And so the nobleman is obviously supposed to be um, a, a representative of Jesus. Um, and so while the nobleman is gone, the citizens rebel against the nobleman. Um, and then the nobleman returns and he calls in his servants and says, all right, show me what you've done with the money I gave you. And the story focuses on a particular servant who, who does nothing but keep the money in a handkerchief. He doesn't invest it. He doesn't put it in, you know, in, the, in the bank for safekeeping and interest, but he just puts it in a handkerchief. And when the nobleman demands, you know, why have you done this? Um, the servant says, well, I knew that you are a strict, like a severe, a demanding man. And so I, I, just, I just put it away. And so the idea is that I was afraid of you, and, and that's what led me to do nothing with the money. Now the nobleman re responds with fury. Um, he points out that if the servant really did believe that he was so strict and so severe and so demanding, he could have at least put it in the bank for safekeeping and to collect interest. And so what the nobleman's kind of doing is pointing out that such a lazy, passive 
use of his money is not consistent at all with the fear of a strict boss. I mean, if you're really afraid, you do everything you can to please the boss, and yet this guy's done nothing. And so um, what's more is that in the story, you know, a really strict, really demanding, you know, a horrible boss, I mean, he doesn't give his servants three months wages to invest as they see fit. And then when they do well, he gives them cities in, in this new kingdom. That's part of the parable. Um, and so what we see here is a picture where this one servant doesn't seem to have a true sense at all for the character of the nobleman. And he also seems to be making excuses for his poor use of the money. He almost implicates the nobleman himself, kind of blames him for, for the way that he um, was wasteful and passive um, with, with the man's money, um, acting like it was really this nobleman's character that, that led the servant to be so lazy and unfruitful. And so the point of the parable is that first, again, Jesus tells this in response to those who thought God's kingdom was coming immediately. And so um, the point is that God's kingdom is not coming immediately. There, there's a period of waiting, and during that waiting, we must remain faithful. Um, remember in chapter 17, Jesus says, first he must suffer and die. Um, Luke will continue to show us in, in, in the rest of his gospel and in Acts that Jesus will go to Jerusalem and he will die and he'll be raised from the dead and then he ascends to his place of exaltation in heaven. As we read the New Testament, we see that Jesus, through his spirit, pours out gifts on his people and his people are called to honor him in the way that they use those gifts, to invest those gifts um, in the lives of others. And if they do, they will be rewarded when God's kingdom is joined with earth in the new creation. And so the question ultimately becomes, um, as is often the case in Luke, how are we going to respond to the king? How are we going to respond to his rule? How do we as Christians and part of the church respond to the gifts he's given us? Are we investing those in the lives of others? Or are we being wasteful, passive? Um, are we living consistently with who we believe our master, our Lord, to be? Um, we see in our Lord beautiful character, generous, but also just. And so do our lives uh, reflect um, the fact that we're aware of the true character of the king? Um, chapter 19 ends with Jesus finally arriving in Jerusalem. He's welcomed like a king, but he rides a humble colt. People rejoice in his coming, but we'll see that they, they rejoice because they assume he brings freedom from Roman rule. But we know that he doesn't, right? Jesus comes to Jerusalem to be defeated, to die at the hand of Rome and Israel, all so that he can bring them freedom from God's judgment. As Jesus enters the city in chapter 19, he weeps because Israel does not recognize him or his mission. They are missing God's kingdom. Everything that Luke has shown us in the last couple of chapters and before about the nature of the kingdom and how it's coming and, and that we should look out for it, Israel is missing it and it leads Jesus to weep. Um, he weeps because they do not recognize the peace that he brings. He weeps as he sees um, in the future the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which happens at the hands of Rome in 70 AD. Um, uh, that destruction of the temple is God's final judgment on the defunct temple system. And we see the uh, dysfunction of the temple system in the, in the, in the final um, 
lines of Luke 19. Um, chapter 19 ends with Jesus cleansing the temple by driving out the salesmen who have turned it into a place where people are robbed and swindled. Jesus, remember, is the presence of God. So he enters the temple, and with his entrance into the temple, he cleanses it with his presence. Um, the temple again becomes a house of prayer, of communion with God, where people can enter the presence of God by coming to Jesus, who is the presence of God on earth. And so then Jesus remains in the temple teaching, um, even though the religious authorities seek to destroy him. All right, that ends our summary of Luke 17 through 19. Um, we've seen a real emphasis on the nature of the kingdom and what it looks like to enter the kingdom and that God's kingdom is centered around tax collectors, children, um, around the poor, around those who know they need Jesus's mercy, around those who know there's no way that they can put God in their debt. And so these chapters call us to the same kind of uh, kingdom humility and an awareness of uh, whether or not we're missing the kingdom too. Um, do we aspire to, to be like tax collectors and like children and like the poor and their weakness and their dependency on God and the fact that they come to Jesus with empty hands and uh, have this posture of, of receiving because they have nothing to give? All right, so that brings us to the end of this introduction. And um, uh, as you get together with your home groups and read these chapters, I hope this helps you get oriented to the um, story that Luke tells.